If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 27. Uh, and you'll know that uh, so far we have come through a, a, a section of verses in the last part of this chapter, about 19 on, that really uh, deal with us as individual Christians uh, in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with each other. And uh, we're going to close out chapter 27 today. Uh, but I want to, in doing what I want to do today as far as closing it out and preaching these last verses, I want to kind of recap the last part of what we have looked at from 19 on because it all kind of goes together. So I want to kind of give you a context of, of where we've been, but not only that, but where we're going today. You'll remember in verse 19, we saw a great principle where it talked about uh, as in water, when a man sees his reflection face to face, you see who you really are. We talked about the Word of God and it being a, a looking glass that we look into. And then it talked about not only face to face, but heart to heart. And we talked about, you know, getting honest with ourselves and, and seeing ourselves as we really are. Most of the time in life, we go through life projecting ourselves not only to others, but in our own mind, uh, other that we've got it together when we really don't. And getting honest with ourselves, seeing ourselves in our reflection of the Word of God, and then uh, in the lives of the people around us that we're all the same, and we all have problems, and we all have issues. We talked about never trusting in our heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 makes it so clear that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But rather, <clears throat> trusting in God's heart, the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Whereof all shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. And never getting to the place where <clears throat> we become self-righteous in our attitude about, about people. And then, you remember we learned from verse 20, it talked about that hell and destruction will never be full. And what it was meaning by that, and we talked about this, as long as man's heart and spirit goes against God's heart and his spirit, uh, and this is the, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll never be, it'll never get fixed. Nothing will ever, ever change. And this being the number one reason why man is incomplete why he doesn't find the self-satisfaction, he doesn't find the contentment, he doesn't find all the things that, uh, that he's looking for. And when he doesn't, then he foolishly tries to fill that void with the things of the world. And of course, um, you know, uh, and he winds up, because that won't work, and so then he winds up destroying everything around him. It's a common thing that we see all the time in dealing with people. We see it in relationships, we see it in marriages, we see it in families. You'll see it in life in general. People destroying themselves and everything that they have simply because they won't do it God's way. And, uh, you know, it's just that simple. Then we, the third thing, we talked about the great concept of getting the right spirit, uh, God's spirit, joined to uh, your human spirit and how that the two spirits have to become one. And then talked about getting the right mind, God's mind, the Word of God in you, based on your communing with God's Spirit and, and, and lining it up with your spirit. Then that right mind will determine your attitude. We talked about attitude and action. You know, your attitude of heart toward God, 
uh, or, or the world. And, you know, and we talked about it in four key areas that are absolutely vital uh, to, to all of us. The right spirit, which will produce the right mind, which will produce the right heart, which then will produce the right action. Uh, God's simple four-point plan for all of us. And in, in time, you know, as we do these things, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this will be the transformation process. This will be a, a, a transformation of when you get the right spirit, the right mind, the right heart, the right action, then in time it transforms itself into, as the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7, a sound mind. That your mind is sound because it's built on sound principles. Then it, it leads to, as we talk about in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, a sound speech. What you talk about has a basis for, of truth in it. And then it leads to, as Titus 1, uh, 13 says, a sound faith. Your faith now is based on the soundness of your mind, the soundness of your speech. And those things, <clears throat> the mind is inward, the speech and the faith is outward. And everybody sees it. And of course, it all goes back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, and based on sound doctrine. Learning the principles of the Word of God. This is what we do here. This is our job. Uh, the, our job is onefold. It is to get the Word of God into you and let it do what it, uh, it, it needs to do. And then the fourth thing that was last week, uh, we looked at verses 21 through 23. And <clears throat> what a great set of verses that was. It talked about the refining pot and the furnace to purify gold and silver uh, of its impurities. And I, and I talked to you last week at how that God will use all the things in our life to make us better. We get an idea that it's only the good things that God takes and uses, but that's not true. Many times, all the good things in our life won't dig, dig deep enough in, in to where the problems are. Amen. Sometimes you have to get down deeper than that, and the only thing that makes you look into that water face-to-face -face or the mirror of the Word of God and see yourself the way you really are is the tough times we go through. Most of God's people think that tough times are bad. Tough times in our life as a Christian are the best thing that can ever happen to us because it brings us to a reality check of where we are, and sometimes that's the only way God can straighten out our course in life. And uh, it's a thing where it's one of the greatest processes in the Bible. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's how God will use everything the good and the bad. It's the basis, as we talked about last week, <clears throat> for the book of Romans. All things eight, all things work together for good. The them that love God who are called according to his purpose. It's everything together. <clears throat> we have a tendency to isolate things in our lives that we don't like and just focus on that when we don't look at the whole picture of what God's doing and how that fits into the context. And when you just look at the one piece of it, then that can destroy everything you're trying to do because that's where your focus is. But when you see it in context of all that God is doing and you understand the great principle that all things do work together for good, if you love him, that's the key. And, you know, <clears throat> I showed you that when it talked about the refiner's pot and the furnace for gold and for silver, how that uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when the day you got saved and laid a foundation in your life, that the gold... You know, the gold represents the deity of Christ and the silver represents the price of redemption. And it's, you know, it's simply purifying ourselves daily to be more like him. 
And you do that, uh, you know, through spiritual maturity. We talked about the five levels, and you guys asked a question Thursday night, and I kind of walked you through that. But it's a purifying our process and our relationship with God in simply two areas. And if every child of God on planet Earth would just work on these two things, it would literally solve every problem you've got. Because every issue that we have, every problem that we're going to get into, will fundamentally come back to a failure in these two. And when you purify these two every day of your life, like the gold and the silver in the refiner's pot in the furnace, it makes you purer. It gets you closer. And it gets you closer in two ways. And there's only... Two fundamental ways. You can talk about all the parameters, you know, well, you'll get really close to God reading the Bible. Well, that Jehovah Witnesses read it all day long, and it ain't working for them. We think that all these parameters of these terms that we use make us closer to God. And I'm not saying they're not important in your life, but you want to scrape it off to the bottom level foundation. The two keys in your life that are going to make you closer to him and keep you closer to him are the gold and the silver. Understanding in your life and purifying it every day who he really is in your life. Who he really is in your life. And every day of your life, you're getting closer to that idea. You see it a little better, a little deeper, a little broader, a little wider. And then, of course, the second thing, it goes along with that is understanding every day what he really has done for you. And those two things will keep you in line and keep you where, where you need to be in every aspect of your life. And these two concepts form everything in our life from every, uh, for every way we go in life and whatever we do for Christ. It'll come down to those two. Those two produce a right attitude. A right attitude about God and a right attitude about what he's done for you. And when you put those two and it makes your attitude, I guarantee you your action will be right on target. And then in, in Proverbs 17:3, it says, The finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, uh, but the Lord trieth the hearts. There it is again. A great principle. The finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. It's that process that purifies your attitude of heart with the Lord. Simply God revealing himself and proving himself through the struggles that we go through. And many times, you know, we, we focus on it. The book of Job is, is a great book on this. And I don't have time this morning to get into that. But the book of Job is a great book. It shows one great concept that, you know, God had a message for Job. And God sometimes has a message for you and for me. And in Job's life, God used the devil as the messenger boy to deliver the message. And so times in your life and my life, sometimes God will use the devil to be the delivery boy of what God wants you to see. What happens is we get so focused on the delivery boy, we never get the message. And, and that's God revealing himself and yet proving himself through the struggles that we go through. And how that one way or the other, the older we all get that claim to be Christians, the older we all get, the more we define ourselves and who we really are in those two areas. It's, it's just that simple. You know, time, time is one of the greatest assets in any aspect of the world. I call time the great definer. I say that when nobody else or nothing else will tell, time will tell. It'll tell you who's right and it'll tell you who's wrong. 
You have situations where you want to prove somebody out and see if somebody's real. Time is the essence that proves that because time proves all things. Uh, somebody says, well, I got saved. It's really, and you want to see if the change is real. You don't go by what somebody says. You, you, you watch it in time. When a person makes the change in their life, then you begin that time to put them on the clock. And the way that anybody proves anything about God to anybody is through the consistency of time. It's true whether you're a pastor. It's true whether you're a Christian. It's true whether you're working with somebody. And, and that's why you don't take young Christians and throw them into the mix of the ministry on a level that uh, really requires a lot of maturity. And yet many times, many churches do. They're so, sh- they're so short on people to do things and help that as soon as somebody gets saved, they just throw them right in the mix and uh, literally throw them to the wolves. In any given situation, time will reveal where God's hand is really at in any issue. And I'm giving you some of the most absolute important material you'll ever get your hands on. You never divine anything or anybody in the short term. Allow them to say what they say. Allow it to be what it is. But down through history, in the long term, you'll see where God's hand is really at. I've seen churches that, you know, that claim to be uh, literal churches and, and claim to be doing what God wants them to do. And many of those churches, you know, back in the day when the Bible was still relevant to our society, many of them were good, solid churches. And you would look at that church and you would say to yourself, man, that's a really good church. But 30 years later, time has revealed what it was really all about. It was a lot of talk. It was a lot of Barnum and Bailey's circus. It was a lot of programs. It was a lot of things that sounded really good but there was no substance to it. And though they may have mega churches, they may have great crowds of people, they have failed the test of time of being steadfast in what they, what they once believed. I told you Thursday night that the two great or three great things that destroyed America and put us where we're at today uh, at the turn of the century, the devil had it all masked out and planned out to take the Bible from you. And the three great things that he, he, he concocted and he used are three of the most damnable uh, heresies that ever came down out of the pit of hell. The first one, obviously, was the charismatic movement. Totally against everything in the Word of God. Takes, takes the facts out of everything in your life and puts it into feelings. The second one was the uh, neo-evangelical movement. And you see that this is the, they have completely taken over Christianity today. They are not the non-denominational churches. They are the churches that, uh, you know, back in the day, my day in the 60s and 70s, they were called Bible churches. Now they have all kinds of names and they're not associated with any denomination because they don't want to, many of them took Baptist off their name because they didn't want to be associated with a denomination because they think that would limit them to reaching people. And the stupid idiots didn't know that by leaving Baptist off their name and entering into another whole area, now they just formed another denomination. And of course, it's, <clears throat> it's, it, it takes the position that it wanted to take the Bible, and you see this. Their goal was to take the Bible out of the hand of the common man and put it back into scholarship. 
And that's why you find them all using the new Bibles. That's why you'll find them having a, uh, you know, a problem with any church that believes the Bible is the Word of God because their whole satanic mindset going back from when they started was to take the Word of God from you and put it back into Greek and the Hebrew, put it back into the colleges, put it back into the scholars, so to speak. And uh, that, was, that was their function. And then the third one was the, knee, and I talked about this Thursday night, was a neo-Orthodox movement. And the neo-Orthodox movement came over from Europe and it, be, and it hit this country in the last part of the 1800s and then into the 1900s. And it simply was a progressive movement. It was a movement that, that said that the Bible and Christianity has to move up as society changes. And their mindset is that uh, we change the message. We change. There's nothing. The Bible, it's, it, it's, it's a Christian evolutionary process. It's nothing different than Darwin's origin of the species and evolution in an unsaved world. The churches have an evolving Bible with an evolving agenda. And this is why in these churches where 50, 60 years ago, if you were, uh, you know, a, a gay or a lesbian or a homosexual, it was painted in the Bible for what it was. It wasn't a personal attack on the individual. It's just like if you're a drunk. You're a drunk, you're a drunk. You might be the nicest guy on the planet, but you've you're, you got a stronghold in your life. And now today, all those things have changed. We have moved through all of this to the point where you know, now that they accept all of that and they bring drinking into the services, they bring the world's music into it. And the thing that you always want to step back and look at is time. Time proved what they once were. And if you believe the Bible and you know about the holiness of God and you know what God accepts and what God doesn't accept, it's the piece of cake. No, nothing else will tell. Time will tell. And, uh, you know, you, 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 I have a message that I preach that I've never preached it to you guys. I've preached it in places that, that needed to be preached. But it's simply called, where are they now? I mean, they were once here. Where are they now? And, of course, time shows you that they have lost their way. Some of the great preachers of 50, 40, 30 years ago don't even believe the Bible anymore. There's pastors that were once stood in the pulpit and preached the Bible. Now they believe that homosexuality is okay. Give you a thumbs up on the internet when you say, I've come out of the closet. I mean, it's all changed. And it, it, it's a great question because time is the, the element. And many times those, through time, those who claim to be the good guys in time wind up being the bad guys, and the people they said were the bad guys in time wind up being the good guys because time proves all things. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, you see it in every aspect of Christianity, and this is the dilemma that we're in today. And it's a thing where if you want to know where you're at and what's real and what isn't real, just get the biblical principles, be steadfast with them, and let time prove things out. It's the greatest asset that anybody ever has. That's why the, the study of church history is so vital in understanding even our, our own last 50 years. How did we get the mess that we're in? And, of course, the answer is found in time. Then we saw how the Bible told you that uh, when you're dealing with a fool, 
no matter what God does to get his heart and his attention, it, it just simply doesn't work. And we saw the example in verse 22 of the mortar and the, and the, and the, and the a pestle, a mortar being a bowl, the pestle being a stone grinding, and you put it in and you grind it up. Picture of God's chastisement in somebody's life of grinding him and for the purpose of trying to separate that fool from his foolishness. And it, we, we saw how that in most cases it will, it'll never work. And I, I talked good great length, got a little emotional about it last week, about this Laodicean salvation. That, uh, you know, you can't lose the truth to the degree that we've lost the truth and still claim that, boy, people are getting saved left and right in these churches. Because the church, if you, the church doesn't have any truth, I doubt how you got the truth. But it's mostly based on emotions and feelings. And, you know, we talked about that. And we saw how a great verse in verse 23 for, for any pastor, how that knowing that the state of your flocks look well nigh to your herds to be in a better position to help them, becoming one with your people, both a pastor and his people becoming one together and having a lifelong commitment to the work of God that is lifelong, goes on forever because you realize that the work of God goes on forever. We're to occupy till he comes. As Proverbs 31, verse 16 says, I pointed out, buying the field together. So that is the up, bringing us up to the point where we're at. And uh, we're going to see today, with that little review, and we'll add these final truths to it, and we'll close out this great section of chapter 27. So I, I want to read the text for you today. It says, verse 24, For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. The hay appeareth, and the tender grass showeth itself, and herbs of the mountains are gathered. The lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats are the price of the field. And thou shalt have goats milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of uh, for thy maidens. Uh, Paul Matthews, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service for us this morning, buddy? Amen. Now, we're going to tie the last four verses of this chapter together with the last couple of verses today. And I want to draw your attention out of verse 24 here. It says, For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation? That's a question. Now, with what we have seen so far, the fool will trust in his riches of his worldly possessions. We, we know that. We've talked about that quite often. And for sure, we know also that they'll be, uh, they will fail him uh, and, 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 and utterly define him as a fool. We've seen that. This is the guy who is so consumed with himself or herself and all that they have that God can never get their attention. And, you know, and again, lay to see in salvation. 
Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 22 makes it very clear that in that day there'll be some that did everything for the Lord that everybody else did, and they'll look at him and say, Lord, Lord, not that we do all things in thy name, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it's a thing where there's some requirements for salvation, and there's evidence of salvation. We talked about that last week. Our fool here has settled for the riches of this world. Uh, instead of the true riches of God, which are, talks about in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, which I think is very ironic that the true riches are found in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, and are found in your Bible, which is a 1611, but that's, that's just me. But Mark chapter 4, verse 19 says that the cares of the world and the, deceptionness, uh, the deceitfulness of riches, and it says that it, it chokes the word of God. It keeps the Word of God from getting into you. It chokes you. And, uh, you know, I've talked to you many, many, many times about life being an investment. Most people, most people today, uh, you know, that are, are, you know, maybe not my generation, but maybe the younger generation, you're in your 40s and your 50s, most people don't plan for uh, retirement, uh, and, and I know, I, I know all that. Well, I'm just going to trust the Lord. Okay, that's good. Oh, fine. Well, we'll give you a hot dog down on the street when we see you. <laughs> it's a thing where, you know, that's the standard answer. And it's not a very good answer. God allows you to do things in, 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 in life that, uh, that will help you prepare. And, you know, most guys never, you, know, you young kids, I, you know, I know, you, you kids are now 18 or 19, even you 20, 25-year-olds. I mean, for you, you know, 65 and 70 seems like a thousand years from now. Can I give you a little bit of advice? It's right around the corner. Yesterday, I was 20. Look at me today. I am telling you. And suddenly you wake up and and you have health issues or, you know, your, your job uh, you can't work anymore or you get to the point where you want to retire, but you can't. And it's because you made no investments in the physical things of life. I'm talking about like four, four, what are they called? Four OK ones or whatever they are. K, 44 caliber K ones or AK 47 dash ones, something like that. You, you've never made any provision for that. Because all your life you just thought where you were now and you, you didn't think about investments. So, and that happens all the time. You hit 65 or 70, your wife gets sick or you get sick and, you know, and you have to work through on that or you're, you're destitute. You lose everything. Why? Because you didn't plan ahead and didn't make any investments in anything that, <clears throat> that are going to uh, <clears throat> be there for you when, uh, when you when you need it. Now, that's all. I get that. That's all in a physical sense. I, I understand that. Uh, and I and I realize you got to trust God and faith and everything. I understand, and I'm not certainly somebody up here that's trying to say I'm, uh, that you can't trust. I, what I'm saying is that you you use the things that God has put in your life to help you down the line someplace. It's just stupid. Yeah, people who we talked about this Thursday night. We have people who who won't go to doctors, you know, and uh, they don't like doctors or or, or, or whatever. You have some people who are against all kinds of medicine doctors. You know, I've met all kinds of people like that that said, you know what, I don't go to a doctor. I do this kind of medicine. I do this home medicine. I do the remedies. I do the pills. I do the crush up the 
marijuana leaves, you know, and it relieves my pain. I want to tell you something. I believe there's great value in that. I mean, back in the Bible's day, back in the Bible times, I, I guarantee you, they, they had, the Bible tells you, they had herbs, they had things that they, I, I guarantee you. And, you know, when all else failed, it was a little wine for your stomach's sake and often infirmities. That would work good for most of God's people. But anyway, it is today, too. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. Uh, you know, every, you've got to use what God has given you. You realize that, that Paul carried a physician with him? Luke, the physician, because he had issues. He had postpartum depression and all those things. He, 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 he had issues, and he carried a, a, a trained physician with him. Now, that's a good example for me to know that, you know what? God gave us those things. And it's a thing where everybody who ever took a stand, and I've, I've seen it all my ministry, Everybody who said, I don't go to doctors, I'm going to trust this person, and when I get cancer or I get this or I get that, I'm going to try all this stuff. I'll tell you, I'm not arguing with you, but I want to tell you something. Every one of them wound up in a hospital and died. I mean, they weren't even consistent in their own thoughts because when it got so bad, you know where they went? They went to the hospital, which is what they talked about against all their life. And, you know, people... They, 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 don't, they, they don't use around them. And I know everything is a balance. I, if, you, if you don't want to take Tylenol and you crush up some, some okra leaves and it helps your head, I'm good with that. Bring some over to me. I'll try it. I loved Andy Griffiths with little Opie and Aunt Oki. I love those things, man. I, it's okay. I'm, what I'm saying is a lot of that stuff, there's a lot of value to it. I'm not going to discount that, but you get a real problem in life, and do- there's doctors to there that will be preventive and things. And, 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 and my whole point is simply this, and I made this Thursday night. You got one body to serve the Lord with, and limiting your options is not good. And I'm just saying you got to find a good balance in the thing. But most people won't do that. And when it comes to their physical investments, they, they haven't done it. And I say all that to bring it around to the spiritual side that life for Jesus Christ and the Word of God is an investment. Yes. And just like most Christians won't invest in the things they should, they, won't, they don't invest in the spiritual things that they should. And you've heard me say it a million, million times. There's only two things in life worth investing your life in because they're the only, as a Christian, because they're the only things that are eternal. One of them is the Word of God, and the other one's the souls of men. Everything else doesn't matter, but everything else needs to be in balance. And then he asked a great question for each of us concerning who we really are and what God did for us, and do we really understand it, where he says in the last part of that verse, and doth the crown endure to every generation? Wow, what a deep searching question. You know, last week I talked about the crowns, five crowns listed in the Bible at the judgment seat of Christ that you get and how Revelation chapter 4, 11, 10 and 11 talks about at some point we lay those crowns at the feet of Jesus. Simply put, here's what he's saying. What are we doing? Investments. Inve- what are we investing in? What are we doing 
to ensure that our children will carry on the crown to future generations of our, of our family right up to the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he's saying. And I say it again, in the Old Testament as in the New Testament, God's plan for salvation of planet Earth was through the families. He tells it over and over again. Any church will only be as strong as the family units in that church. You know, your, your, your children, our children are God's heritage, Psalms 127, verse 3. And when God looked, picked Abraham, Genesis 18, 19, did you ever notice what the basis was he picked him on? He said, I, I've seen this guy, and you know what? He'll do what's right with his kids. He'll do what's right with his kids. And he knew that God, God knew that, that he was going to reach the world through the nation of Israel that's made up of families. When he picked the guy who was the father of the Jews to start the whole process, that he was going to separate out and in time make the nation of Israel. He... Uh, he looked for somebody that was going to carry that crown of the kingdom of heaven through the generations of his family. You know, in this church, many of you young couples and young singles, you, you know, you really have got a good handle on getting it together, and I'm really proud of you. Your spirit, your mind, your attitude, and your actions, and you're moving up through those, those spiritual levels. But you know, Many of you, some of you did, but many of you, you didn't come from a family uh, that helped, that held these biblical values. You, you, you had to get them here. And, and what you did was, is, is an incredible thing. What you did was, going along with this verse, is now that you're here and now that you've got the Bible... Now that you know where you are, you have broken that cycle. I didn't mean that you've discarded your family. I'm not meaning that. I don't mean that you never talked to your mom and dad again because they weren't spiritual. And I'm not talking about that. I'm saying in a spiritual sense, in your spirit, your mind, and your attitude, and your action, you have broken the shackles of that, of that chain, of, that, the way it was. And now, now that you're here... You broke that cycle of the world and your family and your future family, you'll get married. Many of you are having kids. Some of you are going to get married. Some of you, you know, you'll, you'll grow up, be older, just like the older folks here. Uh, you, you, your future generations of your kids, you're going to make sure that that legacy continues on. And yet, I, I, I mean, come on. It's true of every church. It's true in any situation. There are going to be some of God's people that it will stop right here with you. you'll You'll never take it any farther. I mean, for whatever reason, and I, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's many reasons there are different people. Uh, you know, your attitude, your mind, your spirit, your lifestyle ensures that the, that the crown will never get passed to the next generation in your family. You know, I'm not, I'm just not talking out of the top of my hat here. I have I, seen this too many times in all my years. I've seen men who have built great, they were great preachers. And, and they built great churches. But they lost their kids to the world. 
Now, I'm just going to tell you something. I don't care how big a church you build. I don't care what a great preacher you are. And I don't care if you're running 50 million, thousand, hundred and sixteen octillion billion on a Sunday morning and have to have 9,443 buses to get them in. You lose your family, you failed. Because the first church you have is your family. I mean, it's a disaster. I've seen it. I mean, I could list off guys that, are, that you would know their names, that you would know their churches. And, you know, it, it, it's a thing where it's, it's unbelievable. And in, in two or three generations from when those guys died and left kids, and those kids have kids, and those kids have kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids, Two or three generations from now, those kids won't even know what that man ever did, what church he ever built. They'll never hear one sermon he ever preached. I've watched them. I've watched them, and, and you know, and it's, it's, it's the craziest thing you ever saw in your life. The devil knows exactly. You see, listen to me. It's not about building a hundred mega churches. It's about a million families making sure the crown is insured and it goes to the next generations. That's how you do it. It's about families. It's not about big churches, little churches. If this church right here, this little in, in Podunk basement on Podunk Apple. Center on right across from Tim's Pizza, right across from the coffee place that you have to have that the, they'll never deliver packages here with a drone because they never find the place. But a moment there's an atomic attack, half the city will be down here with us. <laughs> if this little body right here, if you, and, and say God gives us a, a, another hundred years, if this little church right here, if every family in this church would take that verse to heart and you'd ensure that not only your kids but their kid down the line, you know what? This church right here would be responsible in 100 years for reaching the whole world for Christ because that's the way it works. It isn't about churches. Who cares if you get a mega church of 10,000 people if the families aren't understanding their responsibility? Who cares? You attract people with your smoke screen, your black and blue lights, and all your things you do, and the breakdancing on the platform, and your, your Bible and a beer ministry. You, 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 you attract people that, and you, but that's not how it's done. It's how through families, the crown being passed down through the generation, the crowns that are going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ. That's where the investment has to be. Their kids, they left God. They don't go to church. They married unsaved spouse. What do you think is going to happen when you marry an unsaved spouse and you lose the whole concept and they, kids down the line, marry unsaved spouses? you got a bunch of people now that know nothing about God, not caring about the God, that five, four, five generations later, if you'd say, do you know your great-great-grandpa was a great preacher and he did this and he did that and he did that? They'd say, no, I don't know anything about that. Doth the crown endure to every generation? I've seen them get into heresies. I, I, my own home church back in Canton, Ohio, 
pastor there. I'm not going to mention his name, but you know what? He had he had two boys, and and uh, he he probably was one of the uh, he was one of the most compassionate men. Built a church back there at a heyday around four or five thousand people. Church is down now to probably less to a thousand. He's been dead and gone for for a number of years. His boy is now a, I may have the denomination wrong, but they're all the same. The boy is now an Episcopalian or some kind of preacher in a church that sprinkles babies for salvation. The other boy has been out of the ministry, out of the church, out of everything, doesn't do anything. He's had more problems than Carter's got liver pills. Now, I'm not even sure why we always use that example because I had a bottle of Carter's liver pills and you knew how many was in it because you could count them. But it's a thing where it, it's gone. It's gone. They, don't, they have rejected what their father taught. And he was right in what he taught. They rejected the Bible. They rejected salvation. They rejected. Now they're baby sprinkling. I mean, it's unbelievable. Doth the crown endure to every generation? They're dead in the water. And what we do with the Word of God, the choices we make, they don't just impact us. You think it does because it's all about you. It doesn't just impact us. It impacts, uh, for sure, our children and in time the future generations of a family who should be dedicated to God's work through the family ministry together of an unbroken line that you just pass that crown from family to family to family till you all get to the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 25, it says, The hay appeareth and the tender grass showeth itself, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered. It says the hay appeareth and the tender grass showeth itself. That's And, and they give forth, uh, you know, what the herbs give, uh, give forth and is gathered. Hey, that's, that's, that's a very good but a very simple concept. The hay and tender grass or the young Christians in our church, the young children in your family. And at some point, God's saying that he's gathering the fruit of them all together on the mountain. That's spiritual Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, Jeremiah 31, Revelation 14. It's when the Lord comes back and the question is, doth the crown endure to every generation? Your kids are like the tender hay and the grass that's coming up, showing it itself. And, 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 and at some point, God's going to take that and he's going to gather it. And they will have a relationship with God and a minister to carry on uh, the family crown to future generations. You know, I've said this many, many times and we've taught church history here and, you know, and uh, many, a couple, many times, and I, I make a reference to this every time we talk about the issue of the King James Bible. And it's an issue of the fact that uh, it, it, you want to know the Bible that you have in your hand, the King James 1611 authorized version is the right Bible. How many times have we taught you that there's two lines through history? There's a corrupt line, which produces all the Bibles that the neo-evangelical churches hold to, and all the Baptist churches hold to today. 
And then there's the true biblical line that can be very easily traced through history. It doesn't take, it, it doesn't take anybody uh, with much of an education to be able to do that. And you find the true biblical line from which your King James Bible comes from. And Paul said, the same that I've committed to you, you commit to faithful men. In church history, there's an unbroken line of Bible truth that has been committed to every generation of Christians through churches. And my point is simply this, families ought to be the same way. You ought to have an unbroken line in your family. I'm not going to, I'm not going to suggest you do everything right as a parent. I'm not saying that. We, none of us do. I'm just saying we don't make some stupid mistakes. Boy, I made some. The bottom line is on the whole consistency of your life, the whole consistency of your life, you look at what the investments that you have made and you can, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what family you came from, how dysfunctional it was, how bad it was. It only matters that here you are now, and you can break that cycle, you can break that chain, you can break that stronghold, and you can guarantee that from this point on, you're going to take a personal responsibility that the crown endures to every generation. He says in verse 26, the lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats are the price of the field. Now, you all know this from all of our times in the Bible, how that, uh, you know, God will use animals to illustrate what we should be. Some of the greatest studies in the Bible are studies about animals. And Job chapter 12, verse 7 tells us that, you know, that the beasts will teach you, they'll show you, and God uses them. You know, you have eagles in the Bible, you have, uh, you know, horses in the Bible. You have oxen in the Bible. You have sheep in the Bible. You have lambs in the Bible. You have goats in the Bible. You have asses in the Bible. And, you know, and, you know it's a thing where, you know, you take the ass. When, when Christ went into Jero Jerusalem in the triumphal entry there over in Matthew chapter 24, he, he, he got an ass and an ass's colt. That is a young ass. <laughs> it's, you know... Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, I love it. I love when you can cuss in the pulpit and get away with it, you know. It's one of those things. My favorite verse is, and they said, the Bible says, and they saddled, he said, saddle me the ass. And then so they saddled him the ass, you know, and he rode into town. But anyway, it's a thing where, you know, you look at that and you got the ass and the ass is colt. And when Jesus went into Jerusalem, he wouldn't ride on the ass, he rode on the ass's colt. Now, you look at that, and I've had people say, well, what's that all about? It, it means something. The ass is a picture of the nation of Israel. The ass's colt is a picture of, of the Gentiles or the church. And at that point, Israel had made the rejection. They're unrightable. So he's riding the ass's colt, which came from the ass, because we, salvation is of the Jews, and we came out of the nation of Israel. And it's a great illustration, a great picture I mean, you go back to Genesis chapter 22 with, with Isaac and Abraham where he's going to, you know, he's going to sacrifice his son. And there you see the great picture of, of the animal taking its place, a ram and a lamb and a sheep and all of those things, what they represent. And in, in the great studies in the Bible. And note here in verse 26, it says lambs and goats. The lambs are pictures of young Christians or our children. 
They're little lambs. They're little baby sheep. The goats are the picture of the older Christians that are mature people. You know, there's a great illustration of this found in John chapter 21 that I want you to turn over to. And it's kind of a, an interesting story. It's one, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, it's, you know, most people aren't drawn to it. It may even look a little complex to some people, but it's, it's, it's a great little story. And it's a story uh, when uh, uh, Christ is resurrected and all the, all the disciples were scattered. They ran for their lives, you know. And uh, now this is the first time when they've all been back together. And uh, we know that Simon Peter denied the Lord. And uh, this is the first time not only all the apostles have seen Christ, but it's the first time that Peter has seen Christ. And it's an incredibly tender, unbelievable story. So I'll read it in verse 15. It says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Judas, uh, Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my lambs. Now watch this. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, the son of Jonas, loveth thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith to him, Feed my sheep. Now watch. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, loveth thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? Now, you got to get the story here. Peter loves the Lord. There's no question about that. And what follows here is a great lesson for all of us uh, because Peter is impetuous and he does a lot of dumb, stupid things, much like all of us. And here's the deal, and I love it. It says after they dined. I didn't get into the dining part yet. I won't. It was before this. But here they are. Peter is dying because he denied the Lord. I guarantee you. Peter's the guy that, that wanted to get a sword and cut everybody's head off. And he was such a lousy swordman, he missed his head and cut off his ear. You don't want Peter in the foxhole with you. He couldn't hit his mom in the rear end with a bass fiddle. I mean, it's a thing where he's not very accurate with things like that. But here it is. They've all got dinner. Now all eating now in the upper room. Peter's dying. And the Lord is sitting down here. You got John next to him. You got the disciples. Peter's about four down, five down. And Peter, he's not eating. He's not. He knows he desired the Lord. Him and the Lord have not spoken since the denial. And I know how it goes because I know I've been there. He's sitting there, you know, and he's thinking, oh, I'm dying. And they're all happy. Oh, the Lord is, oh, Peter, aren't you glad that the Lord's back? Yeah, praise the Lord. I'm just really, oh, he's dying. And, you know, the Lord hasn't said a word to him yet. And he's sitting there, you know, and he kind of looks down the road to see the Lord. And there's the Lord. <laughs> Peter goes. So finally they break up, you know, and go for coffee and dessert. The Lord scoots down a couple to Peter. The Lord loved Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yea, Lord, I love you. More than these? Yes, sir, I do. Well, feed my lambs. Now, the reason why he says lambs, sheep, and sheep is because we know that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He becomes the key apostle in Jerusalem. And he brings them along where Paul goes out. We'll talk about that in a moment here. 
And he says to him the second time, Peter, do you, do you really love me? Peter says, yeah, Lord, I do. He says, feed my sheep. Okay, Lord, I will. Then he says, looks at him, he says the third time, Peter, do you really love me? And the Bible says that it grieved him in his heart. You know why? Because he denied him three times, so the Lord asked him three times. See how that works? You know God will always meet you where you're at. Do you know that? He'll always meet you where you're at. That's a great concept. He asked Peter three times because he did not anything. But, oh, the answer the third time is priceless. It's priceless. He says, Peter, do you love me? He doesn't say this time, yeah, I love you. He says, Lord, you know us all things. You know what he means by that? He says, yeah, Lord, you know I cussed. You know I lied. You know I deceived you. You know I was a coward. And, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. It's, 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 it's priceless because we've all been there. Amen. We've all been there when we've tried to get back and the Lord, he lets us come back, but he holds us accountable to it. Three times he denied him. Three times, or, you know, three, before the cock crowed, three times he denied him. And now he has to be faced with, with, with what he did. And he, he responds. And when he responds and does what's right. Oh, oh I'll tell you. Then he says this. And he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. Now, at this point, the Lord is done with it and it's all good. But now watch, the Lord gives him a great piece of advice, which is a piece of advice for all of us today. Verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whether thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying of what death he should glorify God. And when God had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. Everything is right now with the Lord. Christ talking to Peter after his denial, he asked him three times. Now, Peter is a great example of a lot of God's people. He's got a good heart, but he operates on his emotions. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He gets to the past where he's actually a good man, loves the Lord, but in Matthew 16, he's used of the devil. Because God says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He, 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 he listens, but he doesn't hear. And Christ's now ready to go back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, and he gives Peter his final instructions. And this is, this is important to note uh, how important he was. As I said earlier, Peter will become the main apostle in Jerusalem after Christ goes back to heaven. It's going to be Peter and Paul. And if Peter is going to be the key guy down in Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 16, he's given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So he hands down in Jerusalem. Paul is the apostle to the Gentile church. He gets the keys to the kingdom of God. And what Christ is saying, and he's telling him to do, Peter, you need to understand you can't be the same way you were anymore. I want you to feed my lambs. That's the young Christians. I want you to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Know the state of the flocks. Feed the babies and feed the older ones. 
And then in verse 18, a great statement to Peter and us as to taking responsibility in feeding the lambs, the sheep and the goats, whether it be the young Christians in this church or the young ones in your family. Verily, verily, verse 18, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whether thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whether thou wouldest not. You know what he's saying? It's simple. He says, look, Peter, when you were young, you could go wherever you wanted to go and you could do whatever you wanted to do. It didn't matter. You had the freedom to do whatever you wanted. You didn't care about anything. You just did, said, went wherever you wanted to go. And now that you're older, now that the events have transpired that have changed the dynamics of the world, it's time for you to grow up, Peter. It's time for you to realize and take some responsibility with the keys of the kingdom of heaven that I gave you back in Matthew 16. You're not a, you're, you can't do whatever you want anymore. You can't go wherever you want to go anymore. You can't say whatever you feel like saying. You can't act on your emotions anymore. You've got to grow up and take responsibility. I set you up for the kingdom of heaven to be the leader in Matthew 16. But you can't operate on your feelings or your emotions. Your life is no longer your own. You now have to take care of the nation of Israel. So feed my lambs and feed my sheep. And Peter does. He learned his lesson. He grew through the travesty of the crucifixion and his own denial. I'm telling you. He grew through the mistakes that he made to be what God needed him to be. Now, verse 26 says, and I want you to see this, you feed and take care of the lambs, the young Christians, but the goats, the older Christians, will in time help you, the pastor, by the field. That's what happens. You get saved, you start to grow up, you get some maturity under your belt, you grow through some things like Peter did, and then you realize that my job here is to buy the field, Kansas City. And you realize that you now are here for that same purpose, to help me pay and buy for this field that God has given us. And that's our job. That's what we do. The lambs for thy clothing and the goats for the price of of the field. We pay the price for the field that we have chosen, that God has given us together. Then lastly, look at verse 27. And thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household, and for thy maidens. Or the maintenance of thy maidens. That's a good word. Looking to the state of thy flocks and taking care of them will give you uh, the word of God, the milk here, for three things. The first thing, it'll be food for thyself. Because it all starts with you. It starts with every mom, every dad, every teenager, every single, that you're going to say, when I'm going to dedicate myself to the word of God, the ministry of God, and I'm going to make sure that the crown does not pass through my generation. I'll get whatever help I need. I'll get a hold of Bob. I'll get a hold of whoever. I'll get whatever I need to make that thing happen. Building spiritual maturity in our lives. We talked about it the other night. 
going to those five levels of spiritual maturity, getting you to the place where you can help buy this field. But it all starts with you building on the foundation of who he is and what he did for you and purifying that every day of your life. Then the second thing he says is food for thy household. There's your children. There's your children. You know, as you get little kids and they start to be born and grow up and you talk to your young parents so they get about six or seven as you go through those stages of raising your children and we've talked about, you're all they ever know about God. Whatever they learn about Christ the rest of their life, they will see in mom and dad in those early formidable years. They can't read the Bible. They're not saved. They don't understand how it all works, so they have to go by association. And when you live a godly Christian life, they see God in you, and then at some point you can transfer that over to the Christ that they can build a relationship with. But it has to start with us. Passing those crowns from generation to generation. Grasping how important your family is and how important our spiritual maturity and leadership is to your family. Uh, The family has to look to a rock. It has to be the father. In too many cases, it's the mother. It has to be the father. He has to be the rock. He has to be the, the cornerstone of that family. He has to be the one when everything is falling apart, he's rising above the rubble saying, follow me. That's the way it, it only happens of where you made your investment. You either invested in the goofy things of life or you invested in the eternal things of life. And as we get older, it defines where our investment was. It's just that simple. Then the last thing he says, the third thing, food for the maintenance of thy maidens. That's the people God will give you to minister to. I I like the word maintenance because that's what the Christian life is. It's a maintenance program every day of your life. Oil the wheels, check the tension on the belts, make sure the gears are greased, make sure everything is running smooth. It's a maintenance program. We call it discipleship. One, discipleship two. We call it Thursday night, call it Bible Institute. We could just put it under one big lump and it's a maintenance thing. It's maintenance. We maintenance ourselves every day. You know why? Because we tend to break down. You get a flywheel go off here, your belt slips off here, and you and, and you you know you we we have to mate have to be maintenanced. But note, I want you to notice going back to our first one. It all starts with us, as individuals. The word of God, the food, for you first, and then your family, and then, and I might say only, and for others that you find the true riches and that your crown endureth through all your coming generations. God using your family now and in the future to be God's witness to the world. Listen to me. You cannot be responsible for what your family was in your life as you grew up. Nobody can ever hold you accountable for that. And I know some of you were in bad situations. I get that. But now that you're saved, now that you've got the right book and you're here, you can take charge and ensure your future generations, when you get married or if you are married and you're raising kids or whatever you're at in this thing, 
you can guarantee and ensure your family's heritage to God that that crown will go on to future generations. You're building a lasting legacy of God within your family. That generations from now, they'll never forget who you are. They'll never forget what you taught them. They'll never forget the principles that you instilled in mom and dad or great mom and dad or whatever. I don't care if it's five, six generations. People will still talk about how you broke the cycle, how you decided that you were going to make a difference, and that crown just keeps getting passed and passed and passed. You know, most people don't ever think of it this way, but I got a weird thing, way of looking at things sometimes. You know, when you study history, especially European history, not certainly not American history, but, uh, but in European history, European history, no matter what country you're in, is nothing more than studying of dynasties and, and monarchies. You know, uh, you know, it even started with the Roman Catholic Church. As bogus as the Roman Catholic Church is and as goofy and as untrustworthy as everything that they say is, they, they believe that they, they have an apostolic succession from Peter, that every pope is in that line from Peter. Of course, we know that's not true. We know that Peter would have made a lousy pope. He was married. We know that Peter was never in Rome. It's all bogus stuff that they make up like everything else. But the concept is they have to have an unbroken chain at it through Peter. And yet we, we see that in, in, in the world, too, in every country. France, Russia, England, Austria-Hungary, Italy. They all had monarchies. One of the greatest studies that you'll ever take, boring I might add in some cases, is the, is the history of the kings of England or France. I've always been partial to England myself because there's so much history connected with the Bible of what, what God was doing. But you look at those, at those kings and those queens, how they're all interconnected to a family. That you had Henry VIII that had more wives than he knew what to do with, but he had kids. But the two women are, are Mary, who become Bloody Mary, and Anne Boylan, who becomes this, and then Elizabeth, all connected. And then all of them down together, Edward, Edward V, Edward VI, all of these guys, they're all related. And it, in Europe, it was an insurance that nobody could... You see it today in England. I mean, England, England you know, we still have the Queen of England. Now, I got to say, it's, it's all... She has nothing. If she walked in the thing and said, we're going to do this, they'd put her in a cab and send her over to Burger King. She has no say in anything. They don't run into the queen and say, what, 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 what do we do? The parliament handles that. She's a figurehead because England cannot live without their king or their queen. But you ever notice how she's the queen right now? And, uh, you know, uh, and then you have Prince Charles and Prince whatever his name is, the other kids that are coming up and, and they're princes and they're in, one of them's in the line for the throne and you never notice how that when one of them marries a commoner like they just did, that it just ruffles everybody. You know why? Because they don't want that crown to pass outside the family that has held it for what? 1,200 years? They don't want some... And what's his name over here, or Jimmy, what's his face, coming in and getting in the line? He's not royal blood. He's an outcast. He's an outsider. He's a, he's a commoner. How'd you like to be told by the king you're a commoner? I'll tell you what I'll think of you, king, <laughs> and your kingship. I mean, that's, but that's how they look at it. They cannot allow the crown 
to pass outside the dynasty of their families. You saw it in France. You saw it in England. You saw it in Russia. In Russia, you had the czars. It was family. In Austria-Hungary, you had, you had the, the uh, Archduke of Ferdinand. It was, a, it, was a, it was the family. And a monarchy, it was a kingship. The crown passed down through secular history from family to family. And yet, that's the great model for the spiritual application. A monarchy of your family. Never allow the crown to pass to an unsaved person. Never allow the crown to step outside the structure of the Word of God. A monarchy for your family to the world system to win them to Christ. A monarchy of Christ in your family for God's witness to the world. You high school kids thinking about who you're going to marry or pick a boyfriend or a girlfriend, most of the time that's all short term. You don't look at the depth of where it may be five or six years from now. You singles. You know what? You're going to get married and that's a good thing and you want to find a spouse and that's a good thing, but sometimes you're so pressured by everything that you don't stop and consider how does that going to impact the crown. You young married couples, you have kids, and the kids are wonderful. We got babies all through this place. I mean, if we never want another person to Christ, we'd be running 10,000 in about five years. <laughs> but I'm telling you, we get those babies and we pass them around and we enjoy them and we have fun and we think how cute they are. But I'm telling you, you have to look and think. My responsibility to this is where this crown will go in the generations to follow. Moms and dads. Some of you moms and dads, you came in here and you made some mistakes with your kids. You got in some bad churches, some things happened that didn't work right. Basically, most of it through no fault of your own. But when you got here, you saw the truth and the reality. And so what you wanted to do now is you've broken that cycle. And we have worked together to get that back online. Because you understand it and you want to guarantee that from this point forth, everything that you do in your family is going to guarantee. Does the crown endureth forever? And then putting it right on me, this church, everything I do, every person I talk to, everything I try to help you through, everything I do, at the back of my mind, it's that the crown of this church will endure for future generations if Jesus tarries his coming that we will we'll be here strong and doing everything that God wants us to do long after I'm gone, if that's the way it works. And have it to the point where we know that we ensure that we're steadfast, that we won't be taking Baptist off our name anytime soon. We won't be having social drinking anytime soon. We won't be having bingo on Thursday night. We won't be doing all this goofy stuff. There'll never be a rock band up here. We'll never have people up here uh, breakdancing. We'll never have flashing lights, and we'll never have all of those things. We'll stick with a thing that will work when all the batteries and the power goes off and all your flashing light and the smoke machine breaks down. We'll stick with a book that'll change somebody's life. It worked in Acts. It'll work today. The difference is you and me. We have to make it work in our lives. Husbands, you have to be the spiritual leaders. I'll help you. I'll be there for you. I'll do everything I can do for you. But I'm telling you, 
Moms, you have to, wives, you have to follow that. You have to work together. You have to take and, 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 and take every issue that comes up and make it a team process. That's how you solve it. You work together on the thing. You pull it together. And the overriding goal is that your family has broken the cycle and your crown that you have right now with Christ, you're going to pass on to your family. That it doesn't stop with you. It rather starts with you. Every head bowed and every eye closed.